0: Hey there, thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life
1: to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. We're in the midst of our our series where we're talking about how do you go from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. Or you go from not seeing God and everything to seeing what God is up to in everything in your life so that you can serve and love Him responsibly. So today I want to talk about the fact that every single one of us as a person, when you begin to get healthy, is you begin to understand you have boundaries. You have, you have places where you begin and where you end, and those become the boundaries around your life. And as you live in a holy way or a godly way, you're actually experiencing this kind of healthy boundaries where you know when to say yes, you know when to say no, you know how to hear yes from others, and you know how to hear no from others. Well, if you begin to do that in a very consistent way, what you will see is that God enforces the boundaries around you, that you're not, you're not the protector you're not the defender of yourself, but you have an advocate that is far greater than you are and who will enforce those boundaries for you. Even boundaries against sickness, boundaries against you know, personal attacks, whatever it might be. But there there's, has to be a belief in your heart that that's what he wants to do in your life. So one of the things I want to, before we look at the scripture, I want to tell you a story about how God supernaturally enforced a boundary for us. We were in Uganda many years ago and we were doing prayer training for about a thousand people and at night we were doing evangelistic campaigns out in the open air. Now for many, many years, this area of Uganda where we were had been under the control of the LRA and had been a site of so much terrorism and, and just horrible atrocities done humans to humans. And there had been a strong very strong, occultic, demonic presence. And over the f- course of the first few days that we did, we did training and we did these uh, open air preaching, uh, we had come against witchcraft. And as we did so, the witch doctors in the area became very upset with us and began to curse our meetings. So the last night that we were there, we were expecting about 30,000 people to come to our meeting. And as the meeting was beginning, one of the ways they would draw people is a big choir would be on stage, and there'd be singing, and there'd be all these things, and the rain started to come down. And as the rain came down, I'm going to shorten this experience a bit. Lisa can tell you the whole thing of what she thought. But suddenly, while the rain was coming down, I look up, and my wife is marching around the area where people will come forward to the altar, to get saved. And she's marching and making a perimeter and marching this this area in the rain. Well, I'm in a tent, not getting wet. (laughs) But I see my lovely wife out there marching. I'm like, I guess I have to go out there too. (laughs) So a couple other pastors and I, so there's three of us guys in a sea of African faces, three of the whitest looking guys you ever saw, are pointing at the clouds. And telling them to go back where they came from. Now here's how I knew these were supernatural clouds. There was a black sky, dark as it could be, with threatening clouds coming down into the people counter the wind. The clouds were moving. The wind was going a different direction. And the clouds were coming down towards the people. So every time we would stand and we would say, in Jesus' name, go back where you came from. They went back where they came from. This happened three times, and, 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 and even I think it might have been a fourth time that we had to rebuke the clouds and make them go back. Well, I got tired of doing that. So I had this thought. Make a boundary. Make a border. So I just said, in the name of Jesus, I make a border around every." person and everything that's here tonight in this open-air meeting and no rain can fall but then i said and the boundary will be so powerful that any dark cloud will turn into light and you watch the rest of the night for the next three four hours dark clouds would come they'd hit the boundary and they would turn into light now how do i know that this was happening well All around. Every place there wasn't a boundary, there was a flood. Every area was flooded except where we were. And that night in the area that was staked off, the perimeter that was staked off by Lisa, that night 3,000 people came to Jesus Christ. (laughs) And Lisa was the one on the stage praying for each one of them individually. Now... For some of you, maybe this aspect of supernatural may be somewhat difficult to understand. You see, I didn't cause the boundary. God enforced the boundary. All I did was have faith for the boundary. But my faith didn't cause it. My faith believed it. But God enforced the boundary. You see, what I'm trying to get you to understand is if you will begin to depend on him for the boundaries of your life like I depended on him for the boundary over that meeting, God will enforce the boundaries. And he'll do it supernaturally. Look at, look at the... There's, there is a pattern in the scripture of how God wants to enforce the boundaries of your life. We're going to go for a little bit here. We're going to go to Moses' sermon. Moses in Deuteronomy gives his last messages to the people he's been leading. And he's saying things to them because he knows he's about to leave them and go to God. And so here is one of his, his sayings, his messages that he said to them. Will you read it with me? I like it when you read out loud with me. You are standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God. A covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you this day as his people, that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now, in Moses' words here, you begin to see that God speaks to his people with love and with intimacy. Intimacy. He uses personal pronouns, these personal pronouns, his people, your God. But he also speaks not only relationally, but he speaks legally to them. There's a language of law here. He's sealing this with an oath. He's confirming you this day as his people. Now, a covenant is more than a business transaction. It's more than a, it's more than a promise it is a binding relationship. It is a, a relationship that now uh, does not go away because there are unconditional promises attached to that relationship. And so Tim Keller says it this way, a covenant is a stunning blend of law and love. Stunning because it's personal relationship. Made more loving and intimate because it is legal It is this way through voluntary, mutual, binding promises and vows to be loving and to be faithful no matter what the circumstances are. You see, God, when you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son, God takes His boundaries and He extends it over your life. He includes you in His loving embrace But he does so legally binding himself to you. Your keeping the covenant does not make you acceptable to God. Rather, Jesus kept the covenant for you so that even though you're a covenant breaker, receiving Jesus, you come under the covenantal promises and the boundaries of the Lord our God. Now, it's personal. God is a covenant maker. This is who he is. He does not ever love you without committing to you. He doesn't ever extend his invitation to you without committing his whole self to you. All of his love, all of the time. But as he's doing so, he doesn't change who he is. He he now envelops you in his boundaries. A covenant is basically God's clearly defined and agreed upon boundaries. So from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, you see God laying out what it is to be loved by God, what it is to receive God's love, what it is to be bound to God as a child of God. So by his covenant, by his own oaths and promises with you, he wants to enforce the boundaries of who you really are as a person made in his image. He so values you, he values you above every other thing. How do I say that? Why do I say that? Because if he gave his only begotten son, because he wanted to have relationship with you, he's basically saying you're worth everything to him. So the one who believes you're worth everything wants to extend his boundaries around you. Now, the problem with this is that he's going to defend those borders that he's extended over you because what he's committed to is defending your true self. He's not going to defend the lies you believe about yourself. And he's not going to defend the lives you tell yourself about yourself or that you tell others about yourself. What we're really talking about, when we start to talk about God's extension of his boundaries to you, is that there are three things you have to know. The first is this. All his provision is yours. All his protection is yours. But it all happens within the permission that he gives you in what you do, what you say, and how you live. Now, let me illustrate this a little bit. I was watching this movie, and there was this young woman. She was a teenager. And she had parents who provided everything a young woman could possibly want. She had a luxurious home. She had unbelievable gadgets. She went to the best private school. She had all kinds of provision. Yet she was constantly surly, she was always rebellious against her parents, she was always wanting more, she was always unhappy, and she was terribly ungrateful, though she had everything. Now, she only wanted her parents' protection when her world fell apart. So when, you know, it was bad at school or some relationship went wrong or somebody was threatening her or bullying her, then she went to her parents for protection. But generally speaking, she wanted her parents to leave her alone. Now, everything she had, she had... The provision had been done by her parents. She bought nothing. She did nothing. But whenever she was given the car or whatever it was... She chafed that they put boundaries on her. I can't believe you're making me come home at 11 o'clock at night. I can't believe you want me to tell you where I'm going in your car. And what you see is an incredibly unhappy teenager who has everything, has the protection of her parents, but can't stand it that she has to ask permission Even though she has incredible freedom. But where she has freedom is not where she wants freedom. She wants freedom from anybody telling her what to do. So she wants all the provision, she wants all the protection, but she wants all the control. Now, as I watched that, I went, oh my goodness. Spiritually, we're a bunch of teenagers. We want Him to provide. We wanted to provide every desire we have, every longing we have, every agenda we have. We wanted to provide. When life falls apart, God, why weren't you there? Why didn't you protect me? Why didn't you defend me? But we especially have trouble when he says, here are the boundaries. You are free within these parameters. You are free to be yourself. You are free to make choices. You are free to experience joy and happiness and all these things. But you have to live in the boundaries of what I say love is. The boundaries of what I say sex is intended for. You have to live in the boundaries of what it is when you say yes and when you say no. You have to live in the boundaries that say, God, is this what you want for my life? In other words, you have to live in the boundaries of God's will and believe that that's your freedom. But what we see is we treat God like the teenage girl treated as her parents. I remember this one scene in the movie where something bad has happened she's done something terrible she's violated her parents values she's in trouble all kinds of things so the mother bursts through the door of her room and goes do you ever knock and i'm like this is my house she's like this is my room like yeah but it's my house and i pay for every bit of this but you see if you have to go there with somebody it means your relationship's not healthy If you have to tell your child the room they're living in is the room you provide for them, then it means they don't understand anything. So here's the deal. If God has to break into your life and he has to break through all the doors you put up in your life to him, it means you don't understand anything. And wisdom, really, friends, wisdom is competence in regard to how life really works. Do you understand the very breath you're taking right now? You didn't produce it. It was given to you. When you say, my money, do you know how quickly your money can be taken away from you? Did you not experience 2008 when suddenly even billionaires were no longer billionaires? Are you tracking a little bit with me? See, if we say all kinds of this is my body, my life, my time, my family, never recognizing nothing that you have is really yours. You're a steward of it for a time. The Ancient of Days has given you a few days, and you're a steward of that. And there's only wisdom and there's only true life when you begin to say, you are the source of everything. But then, you see, once you yield what you've considered to be yours to him, then you will discover that he knows better how to do with what you have than you've ever known. If you begin to live a responsive life indifferent to anything but the will of the Father for you, then you will learn how to really live. But here's the beauty of it, is you begin to live with him as your advocate, your defender, your protector. David understood this. In many of the Psalms where he felt under attack, he said, I know that you love me because you defend me. I know that you love me because my enemies have not triumphed over me. In the great Psalm 23, he says, you prepare A table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will chase after me, follow after me all the days of my life. But when? I will dwell in the house. Not in my room. I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Forever. So, will you say this with me? Okay, would you say it? Provision, provision. protection, protection. Permission. permission. Until you realize you live on the permission of God and you are free when you're living in the boundaries of God, you will still not see the fullness of the provision or the protection of God. You're not in the covenant because you deserve it. You're not in the covenant because you earned it. But you have to decide you're going to validate that covenant by receiving his provision, by living with his protection, and loving his permission. Can't do it compulsively. You have to do it voluntarily. This is why you see people who advance so quickly in Christianity and people who do not. All of them have the same Holy Spirit, but some of them have more willingness to be led and to say, Lord, what's your permission? What is your will than others? Some of us are like that teenage girl. It didn't matter what happened in this movie, it didn't matter. She stayed angry at her parents, she always felt ungrateful. She was always fighting them every step of the way. Now, here's the great thing why do I tell this story? Because, you see, a boss can fire you. A friend can just reject you. Now, your family can disown you, but they can't get rid of the blood they put in you. I can say, well, you're not my child, but, but that child's got 23 chromosomes of mine that can't be taken back. That's why the Bible doesn't just call you a friend of God. That's why the Bible doesn't call you just a servant of God. The Bible calls you a son or a daughter because there's something unbreakable about the bond between children and parents. And God has called you his children, not his servants and not just his friends. So he has bound himself to you whether you deserve it or not. And the more you discover how wonderful it is to live under his permission rather than rebelling against his boundaries. You will, you will need to know that so that you can live life to the full. Now, what happens if you've struggled with this, like many of us? Rebellious children, wanting our own way, being, living independently, seeing our own brokenness. Well, the Bible is so wonderful about this. God wants you to be honest. Now, the problem in most of our relationships with each other is that we fear honesty because people have used our honesty against us. Sometimes they've attacked us. Sometimes, you know, they've abandoned us. You tell the truth about your life and somebody never wants to see you again. But you see, God, however, actually is pleased with you when you tell the truth. He takes pleasure in your honesty. Look at Psalm 51.6. God desires truth in our innermost being. John 4.23-25, it says, 24, the, the Father is looking for worshipers who will seek to worship Him in spirit and in truth. You see, when you come here and you sing somebody else's words, but it never becomes your truth, then it's not worship. It's only worship when you are speaking what's true about you. Here's the deal. He will not heal what you will not reveal. That's so good I'll say it again. (laughs) I may end up with a few rhymes today. He will not heal what you will not reveal. Because again, he's not... He is not trying to fix you, nor is he pressuring you. He's showing you, and he's inviting you. And and, and the issue is, will I be honest with him? He wants to hear it all. He wants to hear it no matter how bad it might be, how bad we feel about it. The more honest you are with him, The deeper your walk will be with him, the greater your wisdom, the greater your discernment. If you are dishonest and unrevealing in any area, that area is still your room that you haven't let be in his house. And he often, friends, he often will let you get away with this till you realize, I can't get away with it anymore. One of, the scariest, one of the scariest thoughts is in Romans 1, where it says the wrath of God is revealed when he lets us do what we want to do. See, most people go around thinking he's going to hit them with a lightning bolt. But Paul says, no, the worst thing that God does is let you do exactly what you want to do. And so many of us, we're so stubborn, we're so hard-headed, we have to see the consequences of our decisions before we'll say, hey, that doesn't work. (laughs) Repentance is not a religious thing, it's a relational thing, where you begin to realize that these decisions or these choices take me away from God. They do not draw me near to God. But when you begin to say, if I reveal this to God, if I'm honest about this, he will heal. And the light that he will shed on what I have kept in the dark, the light itself will burn up the power of this in my life. One of the most difficult things for any of us is how messy it is to get healing. And so if you really want healing, it will make you feel like you're falling apart. It'll make your family feel like they're messy, a messy family. It'll make the church feel like a messy place. One friend of mine put on a sign. I think it was New Beginnings Church or something like that. And he put on the sign, a place to bring your humanity. And I said, how's that working out? He says, they're bringing it. (laughs) I said, maybe you shouldn't have put it on the sign. You see, you can't get healed and it all be nice and tidy. You can only get healed when it gets all messy. And especially people who have tried to stuff the hurts and tried to just suppress them and act like they're not hurt. Do you know that fine is not an emotion? What do people say when they come to church? How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. It's usually an indication you're not but you don't think any of us are listening. Are the other the religious one? How you doing? Oh, I'm blessed. No, you're not. You're a mess. So here's another rhyme. Until you admit you're a mess, you won't be blessed. None of us are fine. We're in a pandemic, people. Asian brothers and sisters are being beaten up. African Americans are being killed. How can we be fine? Why are we not real? Why are we not genuine? Some of us are afraid. What's our country even going to be like five years from now? What's going to happen? Are we going to have race wars? Are we going to have this? Are we Are going to have that? How can you be fine? It isn't about being fine. It's about can I, can I take what's messing me up to the throne of grace? Can I take what's making me afraid to the throne of grace? Can I turn to brothers and sisters who won't say, hey, don't feel that? Some of the worst counseling I've ever got is from other Christians. Tell them what's going on in your life. They're like, well, you know God is good all the time. Which they're really saying, shut up and don't tell me anymore your problems. Or they they belittle you and say you don't have enough faith because you're being honest about how messy it is. Wow. Friends, faith is radical honesty. I can't overcome something if I won't admit something. It, in other words, it's overcoming me because I can't name it. Because I can't speak it. You see, I... <laughs> I grew up in this very Calvinistic reform tradition. So it was okay to be angry because everybody else is wrong but us. (laughs) So I was angry a lot of my life. I was very angry. I was angry at Baptists. I was angry at Pentecostals. I was angry at everybody who wasn't me. And then I discovered forgiveness. And it was like, it was like the toilet of my life, which had been stuffed up for so long, finally got a plunger, and it was flowing freely. <laughs> and so I, I, I met Alliance people who were not Reformed or Presbyterian, but they were kind of holiness people. And they talked forgiveness, but were angry with everybody because they made forgiveness religious, not relational. Oh, yeah, I've forgiven them. I just hate their guts. I'm just going to talk negatively about them all the time. Because they wouldn't do the hard work of facing how much pain these people had caused them, and they were afraid to be honest because other people would think they weren't spiritual. You understand? My measure of your spirituality is how honest you are. Because if you're not honest, then you're not being healed. Here's the thing. Once you start getting healed, you want all of it healed. You don't want a little bit. You're willing to be messy. You're really willing to be of no reputation. You're willing for other people to say things about you because you want to be free. And see, that's God extending his boundaries over you and saying, look, others might not understand you, but I'm getting you free. I'm going to extend my boundaries of love over you and embrace you in my everlasting love, and you're going to be healed. And even if others don't understand you, I do. Are you tracking with me a little bit? So here is this idea of God's covenantal extension of his boundaries over you. I love this word. It's a stunning blend of law and love. In other words, his covenantal love means he loves you so much that he legally bound himself to you. You can be the biggest screw-up in this room, but if you have Jesus, he's not going to let you go. So one of the people that's been helping me understand this better is a man by the name of David Benner. He's a Christian psychologist, an elegant writer. And he said this, and maybe this is just my therapy, but it was therapeutic to me. He said, as a serious young Christian, much too serious, I think, in retrospect, I used to think about God's will a lot. That topic got a great deal of emphasis in the rather earnest and humorless Christian tradition in which I was raised. But for all this emphasis and all my seriousness, I seriously missed the point of God's will. I incorrectly assumed that it was primarily applied to behavior, most specifically to choices of vocation, marriage, and sin versus righteousness. So if a person had already settled into a job, chosen a husband or wife, or wasn't facing an obvious decision whether or not to sin, God's will receded into the background. What a shamefully small view of God's love. Can God's dreams for us really be limited to a few moments in life? Isolated decisions and major transition points? Is God really irrelevant to our experience of daily existence? To the rhythms of our daily life, as incredible as it sounds, God is interested in you. God longs for your friendship, not simply your compliance. I don't know if any of the rest of you, this hits it like me, but see, I grew up in a, I grew up in a Christian tradition where basically we were given a Christian template saying this is what a Christian does and doesn't do. This is how a Christian feels and doesn't feel. So if I would be angry, they say, well, a Christian doesn't feel anger. Or if I would be hopeless, they'd say, hey, you just, you, you just don't have enough faith. And so I began to realize that I couldn't talk to people, so I just hid this stuff. And then I tried to put on the behavior of a Christian. If you, have you ever been to a, a fair, an amusement park or something, and they have a picture of the strong man, and they have a cutout, and you put your face in it? That's what Christianity felt like to me. I was trying to put my face into a cutout of a Christian. Even though I knew inside I was failing, yet all I thought of is if I don't do this, God's going to get me, or the church is going to get me, or I can't do what I want to do in the church. What we're trying to get at, friends, is God is interested in you, not a presentation of you. He's interested in your heart. See, if if you boil Christianity down to behavior, then you can hide your heart and fulfill the rules. That's not Christianity. Jesus died for your heart. Jesus did the behavior you can't do and gave it to your account. So that you have this standing place with God of righteousness. Righteousness. You will never be more righteous than Jesus, but you can be more real than you've been in the past. You've got a righteousness that will not go away. It's covenantally bound to your life. So now it's time to quit trying to play righteousness and be real with God and be real with one another. You know what's an interesting thing is if you hate your marriage but you keep playing like you love it, you'll hate it more. But if you actually own that you hate your marriage, then God can change your heart and actually give you love for somebody you've hated. That's the way the spiritual realm works. Are you tracking with me a little bit in this? So this is God's will experience, then God's will is not impersonal ever. It's not reducible to a code of law. Nor is it primarily about what we do. It is deeply personal and inherently relational. And it can never be meaningfully separated from God's spirit and his presence. Now, it's not just God's word, but it's God's word illumined by God's spirit. I have known brilliant biblical scholars who never applied a single principle to their lives. Because you can understand the content of the Bible, but only the Spirit can truly apply the life of God's Word to your life. Without His Spirit, it becomes, in many ways, a dead Word. So what's the issue? Well, we have to learn how to live with a highly consciousness, a high consciousness of His divine presence in our life. Can I just... Can I just get this across to you? If you're the worst Christian in this room and I'm looking around, see who that is. (laughs) All right, I saw you. No. (laughs) See, even if you say to yourself, I will never be very spiritual, or I'll never be a great, you're missing the point. You're still saying, It's up to me to keep the covenant. The covenant has been kept. What's up to you is be is to become present with a consciousness of his presence, of how you begin to turn things over to him, how you begin to gently say, here's my mess. I'm not saying hate yourself. I'm not even saying hate your imposter. There's a reason you've had a false self. There's some need you had to meet, but today I'm saying to you, you don't need it anymore. You've got righteousness that is adequate to be right with God. So you don't need to t- put on an act anymore to play like you're righteous when you already have righteousness. So what you need now is to say there's a gap between my life and the righteousness of Christ, and I want to I bridge that gap. And that can only be done if I begin to say I'm safe enough with God to be honest about the gap. Well, oops, why does this always do this to me? It's testing my patience, I believe. So the most precious gift I think that God gives to the believer is an abiding sense of his divine presence. Jesus himself said, I'm sending my spirit as, a, as an advocate, as a comforter, as someone to come alongside of you so that we would not be left alone as orphans. God's presence, his omnipresence, is everywhere. There's no place you can go that you're not in touch some way with God's presence. But that doesn't mean you're acutely aware or experiencing his presence in a relational way. And so there are moments in your life, even moments of desperation, moments of crisis, in which you are broken down enough to say, God, I have to know your presence now. But here's the thing. Once you start knowing his presence, then you can begin to feel it and experience it with greater frequency. So 2010, I got malaria. 2009, 2010, I got malaria. It broke out right around Christmas, and I had a 106-degree fever for about five days. I have never been in so much pain as the parasites saturated my blood And attacked my heart. And I was in the hospital at Good Sam. And day and night, I had so much pain. So much discomfort. And I remember praying. I said, God, please take this pain. Please heal me. Please take this pain. And it didn't get better. Some ways, it would get worse at times. But something happened that I have never forgotten. I felt like he was holding my hand. And instead of the power of God that I've experienced in his presence, what I experienced was the tenderness of God. And you know, the pain didn't go away, but his tenderness was so powerful to me. And my face was so turned towards his tenderness that since 2010, I can't live without conscious awareness of his tenderness. And what happens sometimes is is I will, I will kind of get overwhelmed by the world, or I'll get kind of overwhelmed by stress, or overwhelmed by these things, and I feel that tug coming back of saying, turn to his tenderness. Some Sunday mornings, I can't, I mean, I love, one of the things I love about being a risen king is the worship leads me into a consciousness of his presence. But sometimes I can't even sing, because all I feel is his tenderness And I start to weep and I try to hide so that nobody sees me. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, I mean, you might question why don't I stand during the. I I can't. His presence with me is so thick that. And it's not tears of pain, it's tears of joy for his presence and his tenderness. What am I. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? I'm not trying to say. Go try to figure out how to be a better you. Stop it. Become conscious of his presence. For over 10 years, his tenderness has been with me no matter what I've been through. And I I haven't made all the best decisions. And I haven't done all the right things. But even when I've turned away from his tenderness, I feel his tug going, come back. Come back. Well... I want you to understand, this is a biblical idea. Psalm 5:3: maybe you know it, but it has something here that you have to have, that you have to understand. I say this prayer to you, Yahweh. For at daybreak, you listen for my voice, and at dawn, I hold myself in readiness for you. I watch for you. This is the key to your whole life. Do you see what he says, though? At daybreak, you listen not to my voice. You're listening for my voice. You're waiting for me to speak. In other words, his day doesn't begin till he hears your voice. You hear these Christians? Oh, oh, God, please, 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 please be present with us, please, I want to slap them in Jesus' name. Oh, come Holy Spirit, come, 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 come. Like we're begging him to do what he's already doing. He's been waiting for us to speak. Your prayer is not the first word. He's spoken the first word. Your prayer is a response. But you see, what does it say? But then I have to make myself ready. I have to believe that he's listening for my voice so that then that encounter becomes mutual. See, if I'm begging him, please come, please listen to me, then I'm not believing him. So you get a choice. Are you going to beg him or are you going to believe him? Are you tracking with me in this? So basically what we're talking about, God is eagerly waiting for you. What we're talking about is you're watching for the one who's already watching for you. You're seeking to attend to the one who is constantly providing protecting, attending to you. Again, David Benner is helpful here, I think. He says, Is not any wonder that I awoke this morning with a sense of blessedness? Oh, that this would be my first awareness every day, for day by day God's presence is constant and my blessedness unfalteringly abundant. Turning our will toward God begins with turning our attention. There can be no relationship without attention. Do you recognize, you see, nobody really feels loved by anybody else if they will not give them their attention. And what you realize is God has been loving you, but you've not been paying attention. Now, there's one last story I want to tell you. Let's so see if I can get to it real Richard Rohr says this way, We cannot attain the presence of God. We're already totally in the presence of God. What's absent is awareness. One more before we go. I saw Ashley over there. I have so much more. So a rabbi was telling a story. I forget the rabbi's name, but he said, A young Hasidic Jew approached his rabbi. Rebbe, the young man asked with seriousness, What is the way to God? The rebbe answered, There is no way to God, for God is not other than here and now. The truth you seek is not hidden from you. You are hiding from it.
0: Will you stand with me as we close in prayer together? The picture that I got um, in this service... And the last service is just for those of you who are parents or have seen this even in movies when your kids come in your room when you're still sleeping and they're kind of standing over you. And so you open your eyes and you're like, oh, hello. But they're waiting. They're just waiting for you to get up and talk to them and be with them and and all these things. And friends, that's what the father is waiting for as well. He's waiting for you even in this, in this moment, in this morning, in this room, at home, wherever you are. He's waiting for you to give him your attention. It's not, it's not too late, it's 1143. You haven't missed the mark today, you haven't missed the time. Right in this moment, I wanna make space for us to give him our attention. Whatever that looks like, God, I'm, I'm here, I'm listening i know you've been waiting all morning for me so would you just take a moment in your own words in your own way to just maybe you need to say it out loud this is a safe space to be messy this is a safe space to say whatever you feel like you need to say maybe it's quietly in your own heart but right now in this moment let's let's tell him we're here let's give him our attention Father, I thank you that every morning that I awake, you are waiting and ready for me. That my mess, my frustration, my list of to-dos doesn't surprise you. But you are waiting in every moment for me to turn and surrender it to you. And so, Father, in this moment, in this space, we just again declare that your way is better. And we give you our attention. Lord, I thank you that we can be with you even in the midst of the things that we feel like we have to accomplish or in our responsibilities or in our jobs that we can still say that we are with you and still be attentive to your presence. And Lord, I'm so struck that you love us so deeply that you, you made a covenant, you made it legal. You said, I will love you so much that if I don't love you, that it's illegal. Father, thank you for loving us so deeply. Thank you for wanting our attention so eagerly. So we tune in to you this morning. And we give you all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name we pray.